Hello and welcome to the ENJ podcast. My name is Simon Carley and today I'm going to be taking you through the interesting papers, actually from November 2018. A little bit late, sorry about that, but you know, things have been happening. So this month's primary survey is actually done by my friend and colleague, Professor Rick Body, who is a researcher up here in Manchester, academic emergency physician, and an all-round excellent chap. So what has he picked out for us this month that's really going to be important for us? Well, we've got a special focus on accidental hypothermia. In fact, we've got no less than, what, four papers covering this issue, two original articles and two commentaries. Freeman et al. Um, focus on the pre-hospital management of accidental hypothermia and report the results of a national survey of practice for preventing and managing accidental hypothermia amongst pre-hospital retrieval services. Um, having approached ground ambulance, air ambulance, mountain rescue, lowland rescue, cave rescue, lifeboat, lifeguard organisations, pretty comprehensive, they, they've really identified very significant variation in practice with regards to packaging, temperature monitoring and the management of accidental hypothermia in this context. So there's a, a good accompanying commentary um, on this by Dr. Gordon, who suggests that the, the voluntary status of many of these search and rescue organisations may have prevented them from having robust evidence-based protocols. Interesting point, bit controversial, actually. Dr. Gordon goes on to suggest that this may be a, a wake-up call for such services, demonstrating the need to harmonise clinical protocols for this important condition. I think there's some validity in that, as we we should be doing evidence-based medicine regardless of who the responder is. And I'm a great fan of voluntary organisations, but I'm also a great fan of evidence-based medicine. I can see no reason why they can't come together. Then there's a separate piece of research, um, Mutsuyama um, et al. report research that provides really valuable insights into the epidemiology of accidental hypothermia. So they've created a register and they've collected data for five years now. And they found that the vast majority of these occur in the elderly and in an indoor setting, which I think probably reflects what we see here in Manchester too. Most emergency physicians will be aware of the prognostic significance of accidental hypothermia in the context of trauma. Again, something which we should be familiar with. But this work goes quite a lot further and shows that the mortality rate is really high. Accidental hypothermia is about 25%, pretty much regardless of the etiology. So it, it, it is important. It is getting cold out there. I can promise you that looking out the window. And so um, four good papers which you should have a look at. Then I'm going to go on and talk about traumatic cardiac arrest in children. And I think there's Really, this is part of an overall trend over the last few years of a growing recognition that traumatic cardiac arrest, certainly in adults, requires a very different approach to non-cardiac arrest. And that's certainly something which we've done um, in our own practice. And there's been several papers in the in the journal about this. So you can go back and have a look at those. But children is slightly different. It's difficult to gather sufficient evidence to justify a change because it's, it's really rare, actually, which is a good thing. But in this issue, Jamie Vasalo lovely chap um, from down south, brilliant researcher, doing a lot of work in this area and also measuring since and triage, um, addresses the problem by basically looking at a consensus-based guideline for how we should manage paediatric traumatic cardiac arrest. And they've looked at quite a few interesting things. Should we be giving chest compressions in this group of patients? Should we be doing thoracotomy in, in penetrating trauma? And what about even in blunt? Should we be doing pelvic binders like we normally do in adults? And a difficult one, when should resuscitation be stopped? So the consensus guideline addresses all of these questions, and it's, and it's an important piece of work. I, I suggest you go and have a look at that. There is a lot of crossover with adult medicine, which I think is important. And I think, oh, children aren't little adults, are they? But sometimes when there's so little evidence in children, you do have to go to consensus guidelines and expert opinion. And that's what we've got here. But if you're a department that could receive a child in traumatic cardiac arrest, which, let's face it, is, well, all of you, then this is definitely worth a read. So... 
Let's uh, go on sticking with the paediatric theme and we'll talk about significant illness in a child. So paediatric early warning scores or PEWS or variants of those, they're increasingly topical in emergency medicine, particularly in paediatric emergency medicine. And a bit of a problem with them because the factors that you look at, you know, heart rate, temperature, irritability are often present in a lot of children with viral illnesses and it can be very difficult. So there's a great interest in the use of these prediction models to identify those children who actually have serious illness at the earliest possible opportunity. And a particular challenge really is knowing what they should be able to predict. I mean, we've talked about this before, but in triage and, and, and prediction tools, significant illness is quite a heterogeneous term, difficult to define. And so in this issue, we've got a good paper by Lilitos who take a more consensus-based approach to define what we mean by significant illness in paediatrics. And I think that's a really important stepping stone into working out what we mean and what we're trying to generate out of Pew scores. Not dissimilar to a project we did some years ago about defining a major incident. What do we mean by somebody who's actually a P1, a P2, a P3? Which at first glance may seem obvious, but when you start thinking about these, what am I actually trying to define? It's really, really important that we're very clear about what that is. So it's a, it's a real dilemma in these sort of papers about what you decide is significant. Now in this one, they've looked at whether or not the patient needs admission. And that's okay, but it's not quite the same to me as an early warning score of illness severity or significance. Because you can have the same person with the same actual condition, lower respiratory tract infection, for example, who does or does not need admission, discharge, HD, or even ICU. So I think this will be very helpful and very useful to create some good robust criteria but we still will potentially be working with an imperfect art which triage is of course and that's okay that's okay right what else did rick want us to have a look at he wanted to have a look at how much time emergency physicians spend with the patients which is probably not enough in my experience but there you go i'm pretty certain that most emergency physicians will probably believe that we spend far too much time undertaking tasks that do not involve the direct contact with patients oh my god yes filling in forms, getting onto computers, putting a password in 15 times. They are just mental, really. So there's so many other tasks we need to complete. Communication with other team members, waiting to contact inpatient teams, hanging on the phone. Oh, don't you just love referring patients to ivory towers and waiting for three hours on the phone, filling out forms, requesting investigations, all that kind of stuff. So in this issue, Dr. Abdulwahed et al. report the results of a systematic review of time and motion studies that have been evaluated exactly how long people like you and me, emergency physicians, spend in face-to-face -face contact with patients versus other sort of stuff. And I don't think you're going to be surprised by the results. The majority of our time is actually spent doing tasks other than seeing patients. And senior emergency physicians are particularly busy doing loads and loads of different things. And there's all that work out there that shows that we get interrupted on such a regular basis. Now, I think this work is really important because it quantifies the amount of time we do actually spend with patients, which is what we went into the job for. And it's important for workforce planning. And also, God, it's so important that when somebody comes along and says, here's a new form that we're going to put into the electronic patient record or something like that, and it's only going to take you two minutes to do. And you go, oh, two minutes is no time at all. That'd be great. What a fantastic patient safety initiative. And yet at the same time, two minutes for 500 patients a day is, wait for it, a thousand minutes. And where are those extra clinicians going to come from? So I think this sort of work where we're looking at, at making clinicians available to do what they actually want to do and what they need to do, where their expertise lies, is a really interesting area. And it's something that seems to be done very badly in healthcare. My vision of the future, of course, is that uh, we would have maximum 
opportunity to spend with patients. And I know that other places around the world have used things like scribes and and um, audio dictation and things like that. But nowhere has really got this one cracked yet. So those are the interesting things in the EMJ this month that were identified by Rick. There's also several other papers in there this week. There's an interesting one, the use of scratch cards for allocation concealment in a pre-hospital randomised control trial. Not sure I've seen that one before. It's quite an interesting concept of uh, how we could actually randomise people in using scratch cards. Yeah, never seen that. I don't know if there's any prizes, but maybe it'll work. And then there's some more work on the presence of companions during emergency department evaluation. Interesting area where there is some controversy. And we've got a couple of bets in there on haloperidol in cannabinoid hyperemesis syndrome. Mm, interesting. And the ability of normal gait examination to rule out cerebellar stroke in acute vertigo. So the best bets are still running uh, well. And interestingly, in terms of haloperidol, um, it's probably not the one to use. There's no control studies out there to suggest that it works. Um, and in terms of gait assessment um, to rule out cerebellar stroke in acute vertigo, I use the HINTS exam, which is probably what I think most people do now. Um, the bottom line is that a normal gait examination can't rule it out as a cerebellar stroke, so probably not something that we should be using in our diagnostic armamentarium. Right, let's leave that for now. Um, have a great time with your emergency medicine and enjoy the winter. It's going to be tough but it'll be interesting. And interesting makes it a pretty cool job to do. Have fun. Bye.